News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Messias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to episode 94 of the Luke Messias Show. I am joined by two Texas political consultants today. We are going to talk about what Republicans should learn from the uh, November general election in the state of Texas. We have a lot to unpack. We probably won't get to all of the things that um, Republicans are going to learn, but hopefully we'll touch on a couple of them. Uh, Matt Makoviak and Brendan Steinhauser. Matt is the GOP chair of Travis County. He's also a Republican political consultant. He was helping run Tony Gonzalez campaign, which was a very hard fought victory for Republicans here in the general. Brendan has worked for elected officials. He's run statewide campaigns, uh, was John Cornyn's actually campaign manager six years ago when he was running. So a little bit more competitive of a race this time around. And so some of the shifting dynamics we can talk about there. Uh, But Brendan also works for all sorts of players within the political circles, a lot of work here in Texas. So ask both of these guys to come join me just to talk about some of the key takeaways. Matt, why don't we just kind of start with you, um, both in the Travis County portion, Tony's race, but then also just statewide as you look at the general election results, what what are your kind of top key takeaways? Yeah, I guess if you start at the statewide level, I mean, the big question going into the 2020 cycle is, is Texas going to finally become a battleground mm-hmm. state? And, you know, Democratic operatives who've been trying to make a living in this state have been trying to sell that dream for a long time. It goes back at least until 2014 when I think when Battleground Texas kind of launched in Texas with a lot of out-of-state operatives. You can actually go back even further than that. I'm trying to remember what year the dream team was. I think that was 2002 mm-hmm. with Tony Gonzalez. Yep. Uh, not Tony Gonzalez, Tony Sanchez, excuse me. Yep. Tony Sanchez for governor of Ron Kirk. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Victor Morales, that that whole uh, statewide slate. So they've been selling that dream for a long time. And um, I think the Democrats made one really significant miscalculation as they looked at 2020. They thought that because Trump won in 2016 in Texas by 9% and that Beto lost, uh, narrowed that margin to 2.6% in 2018, that that was a trend and that the trend would continue, Mm -hmm. almost like gravity. Um, And it it just fundamentally misunderstands presidential election cycles and midterm cycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Presidential cycles rhyme. The the electorate is predictable. Uh, Voter behavior is much more predictive uh, in presidential cycles. Midterms are what fluctuate. Mm -hmm. It depends a lot on which party's in power, what the job approval rating is, candidates, political environment, fundraising, all those kinds of factors. Um, I will say this. Had John Cornyn and the state party and a lot of other people not taken the 2020 cycle extremely seriously from the morning after the 2018 cycle ended, uh, it's not implausible that we could have had the kind of result in Texas Mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats were promising. Uh, but if you look at 2020, I mean, it, it, this will sound partisan, but it's it's and maybe even hyperbolic, but it's it's neither. Analytically, this this election cycle is an absolute unmitigated disaster for the Democrats. Um, couldn't it come at a worse time. If you look, we were talking about this before we got on air. I mean, if you look at the range of potential scenarios, election scenarios, yep. from the p- best possible for the Republicans to the worst possible for the Republicans, this is pretty darn close to the best possible yep. for the Republicans. Um, I do think that margin tells you a lot. You know, when when Trump won by 9% in Texas, we lost only five seats in the state house. Yes. When Cruz won statewide by 2.6%, we lost 12 seats. Mm-hmm. That delta was going to determine whether we we're going to hold the Texas House or not. Mm-hmm. And because Trump won by 6%, I'd been saying 5 to 7% for several months. It was getting pilloried online about it. He won by 6%. Looks like about 550, 600,000 votes out of 11.4 main cast. 
Um, that's in a good range. That doesn't mean that we don't have things to be concerned about. When you go from 9% win to a 6% win, you can, that, that is a trend line. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be you know, unique to Trump. We'll see. But uh, the, the reason it was an unmitigated disaster for the Democrats, not only did they not bring Trump's margin down considerably, not only did Cornyn win by 10 points going away despite being outspent, despite having $30 million spent, uh, negative ads against him in the last three weeks, they didn't flip one net new Texas House seat. So they needed nine seats. They got a net of zero. I mean, yep. literally, the House, you had one person leave, one person come in, nothing else changed, uh, hundreds, you know, $100 million plus spent. Um, congressional seats, eight seats, 10, maybe 12 even, were, were in play. Uh, they didn't pick up a net congressional seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know anyone that thought that was likely to happen. Yep. So, you know, statewide races, if you look at railroad commissioner, you look at court of criminal appeals, you look at Supreme Court, all those were in good, good shape for Republicans. We did lose Senate District 19, Pete Flores, uh, in a tough seat to hold in a presidential cycle. He lost by, yeah. I think, 3%. So that was really the one really disappointing thing, I would, I would say, from Republican side. But overall, look, a great election for Republicans. There are a lot of lessons that we can talk about as yeah. we go on here. But um, the margin was significant, and the Democrats going into redistricting. Yep. Wanted to take the Texas House back. Yep. Wanted to affect the congressional map, and wanted to try to lock in those gains for the next ten years. That's why the the the, the electoral disaster that we witnessed is something that's not going to cost the Democrats just for one election cycle. It's going to cost them for the next decade, mm-hmm. and there's nothing they can do about it. I really do kind of wonder what pitch they make to donors oh, next yeah. year, right? I mean, because you have you have the the 2014, it was Wendy Davis, and we're going to take this energy that she just created, and now we're going to take this into this statewide campaign. And then in 2016, you know, they did their best to kind of try to make some, uh, I think, effort with Trump's numbers and, and basically saying, hey, this the, the Trump polling effect is what we're going to use to to boost up our our fundraising, and then 2018 with Beto, and 2020 with then this idea of Texas going blue. So, what is the pitch going into 2022 for Democrats who are trying to pull together tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars to comp- compete within the Lone Star State? I did want to ask um, what you think, and then I'll, I'll bring you in after Matt answers this question, Brendan. Um, so in 2016, you know, we talk about the Delta, too, because Trump Trump wins the state by five or six. Then you have, uh, you know, Ted Cruz losing or winning the state by two and then and then Trump's victory. But there's also the total vote. So sure. uh, Donald Trump in 2016 pulls about four point seven million votes. And then Ted Cruz going into the midterm, that drops to four point two, four point two five. So you essentially have so it, this isn't easy. It's not perfect math, but you have several hundred thousand people that also just don't come back out to vote in the midterms that voted for Trump in 2016, didn't come back out. And then Beto just increased Hillary's number a little bit, 3.9 to 4 million, right? So he bumps up a little bit, Ted drops down and you have this couple hundred thousand vote. And then you go into a record turnout year. And this is something we can also talk about that the media has for a long time just said, Texas is a non-voting state. It's why uh, it is red. And all of a sudden, 5.9 5.9 million people come out and vote for Donald Trump, and you have a 1.2 million increase of total voters. And what we saw was that those new voters came out and voted for the president and then voted all the way down the ballot. Yeah. And then a lot of your Cornyns, your Supreme Court justices, your state reps, your congressional candidates also were able to reach out to some of the disenfranchised, upper-income, you know, middle-class whites who were not voting for Trump and keep them over to the Republican Party for the rest of the way down the ballot. So this kind of, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Matt and Brendan. I see this 
increase in overall voters. I mean, just a massive increase. And I'm not sure that those people necessarily came out to vote for their state rep, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, right? Like this this new guy, um, I remember uh, Tony Tinderholt was one of the competitive races. He This guy walks up, you know, and he's like a, a Vietnam vet cap. And he's like 62 years old. And he's like, I've never voted in my life. And this is not the profile of a voter you would think has never voted in your <laughs> life, right? Like we think of the people who don't vote and you think of them as kind of the bums on the street. But this is sure. somebody who seems pretty active, involved, and engaged in society who's saying, I'm voting. And he's voting for Trump, but he's also then voting Republican all the way down. And of course, you know, Matt, you know, as somebody who's running campaigns and the campaigns we were running and Brendan, you saw this happening all over the state. I mean, we were also focused on those people that we knew were probably not voting for Trump. who had voted Republican in the past. So we could kind of focus on them while, to be honest, I feel like the president kind of brought all these new people to the table. So I just want to get your thoughts on that, um, of what you saw, and then maybe bring in Brendan as as a result. Yeah, look, I mean, the... um it's not that Democrats didn't do a good job turning out more voters. Mm-hmm. They did. It's just Republicans did a better job mm-hmm. in 2020. And I think the expectation the Democrats had was that they would be able to turn people out and the Republicans wouldn't. Yep. Um, again, I think building off the 2018 model, thinking – I mean, look, they were thinking, look, the suburban flight of, you know, white college-educated women um, plus, you know, massive turnout among minority voters, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. I mean, all these factors, they were kind of building a model where they could really see – a two, three-point win uh, for Biden in Texas. And as it turns out, I mean, despite, you know, protestations from Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke, who wrote a Washington Post op-ed begging Biden to invest in Texas, mm-hmm. they knew better. I mean, mm-hmm. they, what they, you know, no one in, in uh, Wilmington, I guess, was saying, you know, let's not, let's try not to win Texas. Mm-hmm. They were looking at it and saying, where can we spend our resources yes. best? So uh, you're right, though. I mean, look, if, it's all about marginal resources. And campaigns, particularly mid-ballot or down-ballot, have to use resources very efficiently. In a presidential year, you have to count on the top of the ticket to turn your core mm-hmm. voters out. Your your ability to turn a core voter out is going to be is going to pale in comparison to a presidential yeah. ticket or to the national party committee or to the state party. Um, and so, if you look across the state, the candidates that did the best are the ones that I think this is maybe some lessons. But one is they had their own identity, right? They could hold the Trump base or certainly not turn off a large percentage of the Trump base. But they had their own identity, right? So you get sort of the, the positives that come with Trump, mm-hmm. but you don't take on the, the, the personality-based negatives that perhaps come with him. And they use that identity to, to, uh, to reach out to swing voters, yep. right? And that doesn't mean you water down you know, your, your positions or you're less conservative. It just means you highlight different issues. You talk to them about issues they care about that you also care about. Um, and you communicate in, you know, directly with them in ways that are very effective. And so, look, John Cornyn did that extremely effectively. If you looked at his paid media, I'm sure we all watched the TV ads yep. the last month and we're thinking, well, that doesn't really move me. Yeah. It wasn't intended to move yeah. us. I, ba- I would tell people, you know, while Trump was turning these red-blooded Americans out, John Cornyn's like, I'm banning vape products and I'm open to some gun control laws. And you're like, well, this is not <laughs> ideal. But all he was caring about was Williamson County. Denton County. Yeah, Fort Bend. Absolutely. Yeah, all the suburban counties. Absolutely. Brendan? Yeah, I think I agree with with all this that's being said. And I think, you know, there's another reason why Republicans did so well. And I think, well, there's a couple of big ones that stand out to me. Texas stayed red. It stayed conservative because the economy is good here. Despite the government-mandated shutdowns, the economy is strong. It has been strong. People are flocking to Texas because of our uh, our lifestyle, our, our job uh, environment, the, the fact that there's not a state income tax, that generally speaking, we do better on those policies in other states. People are flocking here for opportunity, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, so those people who are moving in, I think there was a question about whether they would support Democrats or Republicans. And I think the data shows that at least a slight majority or a slight plurality of them support Republicans or conservative policies, certainly on fiscal matters. So I think that's a good sign for us going forward. They're not coming here and voting for higher taxes. They're not coming here and voting for crazy environmental regulations that um, that destroy jobs, right? So I think the economic argument among that group uh, really resonated. And again, many of them may have said, I don't like you know the president's uh, character or personality or tweets, but I'm going to look beyond that because I'm looking at policies. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I think was an impact among um, voters like Hispanic voters, which we'll talk more about in a minute, was that they, they too care about the economy. They too care about pocketbook issues. When you have one party saying we're going to basically shut down fracking, right, um, the oil and gas industry would be pretty devastated by that. Mm-hmm. So I think they're looking at that. They're seeing clear-eyed. That's bad for the economy. That's bad for my job. It's bad for my family. So they're looking beyond sort of the, the, the heated rhetoric out there. They're looking beyond sort of the, the personality, again, to the policies. Mm-hmm. The other thing going on that I think the Democrats have to deal with is that the radical left probably cost them hundreds of thousands of votes. Mm-hmm. The craziness we saw all summer long, the embracing of Marxism, of, of anarchy in the streets, mm-hmm. of smashing windows, of demanding people get on their knees and, and make pledges uh, to take certain positions, it was, out, it was outlandish. And they were doing this among even people who had a propensity to agree with them on certain things. Mm-hmm. So the radical left really hurt the Democrats this cycle. And I think the Democrats know that. When, when average Texans are looking out there and they kind of see a little bit of craziness on both sides, and they're kind of considering all of this, but they see one party that's embracing radical ideas. I think many of these Texans would call them un-American ideas. Um, and the other party, yeah, they have a guy in charge who, you know, might say some crazy things, but the policies that he pursued were, were policies that made a real impact in their lives. Um, this is a center-right country. This is not a country that will ever support actual socialism, communism, those sorts of crazy ideas that have been discredited uh, through through history. So I think that really hurt the Democrats here in Texas, a state that, again, has a culture that is small-L libertarian, small-C conservative. And I just think that people were open to voting for Joe Biden. They were open to voting for Democrats. But at the end of the day, they had to make that decision, and they went in and pulled the lever for a more rational uh, a rational candidate, a rational party, the Republican Party, that had candidates that support policies that make their lives better. So I think the mm-hmm. Democrats really have to have a, a reckoning with the far left. Yeah. Um, the So this this gets into one question I'd love for both of you to kind of give your opinions on. Um, there, are, there are two groups within the Republican Party, one that likes to avoid culture issues as much as possible, and another one who eagerly likes to jump into those battles. Um, and I think that's always a tension. I mean, it's probably existed within our party for ever, but I'm, I'm, both of us have, have encountered that, that issue. Um, where I, I think the question that I, I don't know the answer to, I have an opinion on it, but I think that Trump's overperformance, and this can get us into Zapata County and Cameron County and the Hispanics and stuff, but Republicans have for a long time tried to figure out how to reach out to some of these different communities that we did incredibly well with in Texas this time around. Um, and the idea being, well, they're pro-life and, you know, do you have Spanish-speaking ads and do you have some cultural outreach and do you have issues that you agree with them on? But in Donald Trump, one of the things I think we can at least admit is that he was seen by most people as somebody who was at war with the cultural left. I mean, meaning he was more involved in the culture issues than probably 
one side of the Republican Party would be as comfortable with. And so you have this trade-off where you go, I can do better with a college-educated white suburban voter if I avoid these culture issues. But what I think we also learned this election is that if you shed some of those votes, it gives you a path to to the rest of them. And I, I think that that's kind of the question that I think the Republican Party in Texas is going to be asking itself for the next two years, because you're going to have one group that says, hey, I want to go back to the days where I can get all these suburban voters, and I still think I'm going to keep these Hispanics because the radical left is going to do the culture stuff for me, so they'll just push them into my camp. And then you're going to have one side that says, hey, I think we need to actively engage in these culture issues because that's what broadens the actual tent of the Republican Party. And yes, we're going to shed some suburban voters, but we've shown that a Morgan Meyer and a Tony Gonzalez and a Chip Roy and these other candidates can still reach out to those suburban voters and do well with them. So, Matt, what do you think, you know, what's your kind of view on on that issue in general? Yeah, look, it's a great point. It's a great question. And, you know, part of it depends a little bit on what you what you consider a, a quote unquote cultural issue. Yeah. Right. So let me give you my thoughts. And then yeah. you can. Go. So, I, I mean, immigration, I think, is a cultural yeah. issue. Um, I think the uh, you know, the gender issue is a culture issue. Donald Trump is, you know, had policies, whether it was on the education front or the healthcare front, that was basically defining gender as a man and a woman, things like that. The abortion issue is seen as a cultural issue. Um, so immigration and, you know, your social conservative, if there's others you would add to it, I think it's kind of seen. Yeah, I mean, and I agree those are all there. And I think the other, you know, the other question would be, do you consider, you know, big tech maybe a, a, a cultural, cultural issue as one example? Um, look, there's no question that Trump is, I think, his mo- at his most comfortable when he's in the middle of cultural fights, mm-hmm. right? Um, he, he really enjoys that. He, he, you know, he has a 1950s cultural mentality because of just, just generationally, you know, he, he's, a, he's of like our parents or even maybe our grandparents' generation in a way, sees America that way, kind of wants to go back to an America mm-hmm. that's like that. I don't mean that necessarily through a racial lens, but um, but I do think we have to be smart on these cultural fights. I mean, the, the question for me is, uh, is is two things. One, you know, is it a foundational principle that's at risk? I mean, that, you have to start with that. Mm-hmm. If, if you stand for something, you know, if you don't stand for anything, you'll, you know, you'll fall for anything. Um, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Uh, but second is, you know, does, does having that fight grow the appeal of the party and the movement? And more importantly, does it divide the Democrats? Right. And so, you know, I mean, I was thinking about like, you know, free speech on college campuses because is that considered mm-hmm. a cultural issue? I think it probably yeah. should be. I think yep. just what's going on in education in general yep. probably should be considered a cultural issue. So yep. part of it depends a little bit what you're talking about. But um, but I, look, to me, the most amazing thing to me about the 2020 election, I think, of all the amazing things is that I think Brendan, I think, had more of a fear of this than I did, although I think we both did. And that was that, that, that an electoral reckoning was coming for the Republican Party yep. and the Trump's uh, underperformance was going to wipe us out, not just in Texas, but everywhere. Um, and certainly that that scenario was 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 there, um, but it didn't materialize. And so, yep. and that's a very good thing because um, the consequences, we were talking about what a disaster it was for the Democrats in Texas. I mean, it would have been the same way for yep. us here. It had been in reverse, but it's that way in every state we have redistricting. Yep. You look at the states where they're going to lose seats, it's, it's Democratic states. You look at the states yep. where we're gaining seats, it's Republican states, it's yep. Florida, te- Texas, um, et cetera, North Carolina. So... Um, 
but to me, the, the, the biggest thing about the election, I think, is that Trump has turned the Republican Party into the party of the working class. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Uh, he's the only, other than Reagan, he's the only person in my lifetime that's done that. Mm-hmm. He's given us an opportunity to continue to be a working class party. Yep. And he's done that, to your yep. point, through cultural issues, through issues like trade, um, which you probably wouldn't consider a cultural yeah. issue. It's yep. more of an economic issue, yep. right? And I'm not a huge fan of, um, of using tariffs. Um, and I think you can debate whether the use of tariffs has, has mm-hmm. um, really uh, – made a appreciable mm-hmm. positive difference for the average working class person. Mm-hmm. But at a minimum, he has moved the party on trade. He's moved the party on immigration. He's moved the party on, I think, non-interventionism on these issues. Whether that sustains or not, I don't yeah. know, because the big question for me is, is Trump, has Trump changed, fundamentally changed the Republican Party? Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways he has. And this is something we have to, as a party, think about is how do we take the good that's come from this, but then flush the bad? And I think a lot of what's bad about Trump politically is very unique to him, right? His personality, his lack of discipline, surrounding him with, with people who are not professional, um, his, uh, you know, you can kind of go in those, those categories, the way he communicates, the way he behaves. Those things are very unique to him. They're not transferable to anyone else. Um, but the upside of, of trying to uh, increase U.S. leverage with China and, and punish China and decouple our economy – of trying to actually enforce the law on immigration and on border security, yep. uh, of trying to end forever wars um, and still have a strong national defense, but be very careful about how we use yep. it. I think those those are positive things. And so if we can keep that issue profile together, I think we have an opportunity to sustain those working class gains that he made mm-hmm. uh, in the Midwest, but also even perhaps among Hispanic voters. I mean, that to me is the second really major story here from the election was, was the overperformance that Trump had among not just Hispanics, but also African-Americans. According to exit polls, it's the largest mm-hmm. share of the non-white vote for a Republican candidate running for president since 1960. Yeah. Right? Think about that. After four years of being told he's racist, he's anti-Jewish, he's a Nazi, he's yeah. Hitler, he's whatever. He's caging a bunch of Hispanics. Caging children. Yeah. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. I tell people, I feel like New York Times subscribing college graduates in Georgetown we're convinced that Donald Trump thought Hispanics on the border were racist. <laughs> and then all the Hispanics on the border were like, I like Donald Trump more than any Republican I've ever liked my entire life. I mean, that's what we see at the border counties. And that's something that, again, Republicans have to at least acknowledge and go, you, you hit on something that I've heard from various different people, which is, you know, so I think there are some people who say, hey, I would love to get Donald Trump's energy and cultural issues and middle class appeal without some of his you know, personality that can turn off some of these yeah. um, suburban voters. And I, I do get that. At the, I think the question is, if you replace a Donald Trump with a, and, a, and you know, John McCain, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, ilk, because that's been the- yeah party standard bearers of the last, you know, decades, uh, that is not that, if that makes sense, right? And so that to me is where we're going to have a discussion for the next several years because you're going to have a lot of people who say, hey, that's kind of where I want to go and we can maybe keep a little bit of trade and keep some of this, but there's going to be a real battle to say, I don't want to talk about immigration. I don't want to talk about these issues. And like I said, I mean, I'm in the camp that likes the culture fight. Right. So that's I'm comfortable there. I like to push our party there. That's fine. And I understand other people who want to avoid it. Um, But I think that there's this assumption that there is going to be an assumption made by one side, which says we're going to keep getting the Hispanic vote while avoiding that. And or there's going to be a potential where you say, hey, nothing was wrong with this entire approach and we're fine. 
at the end of the day, there's 5.9 million people that came out and voted Republican and like 1.5 of them had never done it. I mean, they had not come out before. And some of those are new transplants that are going to vote. But a ton of those people are people who have been here. They could have voted for the last 10 years and decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Brandon, what do you think about that? Just You have these two cultural potential approaches. What What is Donald Trump, what about him appeals and brings those people out, and what about him loses us some of the suburbs? And how do Republicans kind of juggle those two issues? Sure. Well, and I think the the challenge to what you laid out is that the, the, the white voters as a percentage of the overall electorate nationally are going to decline. They kind mm-hmm. of have been... So I think trying to build a majority on that nationally will be more and more of a challenge, notwithstanding what we just saw. So that's where I think a lot of Republicans are looking at saying, how much longer can we rely on that? Now, you laid out a good point of what just happened, but is that sustainable over the next four, six, eight years? That's an open question. But to your question about the president and the culture war, look, I'm of the opinion that where we are defending cultural values, where we're defending America, where we're saying, you know, um, yes, you should stand and, and stand for the national anthem. You should do the Pledge of Allegiance. You should respect the country. You can criticize the police. Yeah. You, can criti- you can criticize the government. But when you outright turn your back in that symbolic way, if you're in a, a position, you know, a, a big cultural position, if you're a soccer player, if you're a, an NFL football player, that's seen by the average American as disrespectful and, again, mm-hmm. not patriotic. So there you're defending America, right? That's a good position to be in, I think, for, for the country. Mm-hmm. If you're defending religious liberty, right, if you're telling people we're going to defend your liberty as it relates to the LGBTQ agenda, you're on solid ground. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going out and you're offensively trying to come at those folks in a way that you're trying to be more involved in their lives and they're involved in your life, then I think you start to lose those people. But I think that we can win on that issue, again, to the extent we're defending religious liberty. The same is true on life. What are, what are the opportunities to pass laws and to legislate in a way that defends life and, and, and uh, you know, laws that actually protect life, that, that allow more babies to, to be born and to survive and to thrive? I think by, by being smart about the, the, the place that we go and fight those battles, we're going to get people to come to our side. Because, again, that issue is kind of a half-and-half half issue, but reasonable things that can bring people on board and with the pro-life agenda, I think— attract people to us. Again, defending on, on the border, defending the police, right? You don't have to agree with everything the police do in this country. There are certainly, there have been abuses, there have been instances of um, really tragic things that have happened. But in general, this blanket anti-police, defund the police, that does not play well across mm-hmm. the country. It doesn't play well with the middle class. It clearly doesn't play well with the Hispanic community along the border or anywhere in Texas, because a lot of those folks are police officers. They're family of police officers. There's a lot of veterans in the Hispanic community. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, where you're you're on defense and you're saying the radical left has gone too far and we're going to defend American values, we're on solid ground. Mm. Uh, So, Matt, you mentioned, you know, the working class changes that are happening in the Republican Party and the minority situation. This is a real small story, but I... I was had an electrician in my house 45 days ago, and he was replacing a panel in our backyard and started talking to him. And uh, I said, so are you going to vote this election? And he's a middle class, you know, 40-year-old Hispanic man. He said, no, nah, I haven't decided yet. I said, well, did you vote last time? He goes, no. I said, did you vote the time before? He goes, no. I said, well, how long have you been registered? He's like, since I was 18. I said, have you ever voted? He's like, no, I've never voted. And so I go, okay, well, who are you going to vote for? He goes, I don't even know who I'd vote for. I said, what do you care about? And he said, 
charter schools mm. because he said charter schools have changed my family. Mm. My kids got into this charter school in San Antonio and they're learning and they're growing and that's what I care about. So of course then I'm like, oh buddy, you know, like yeah, do talk. I have a pitch to you? So I'm going, <laughs> hey, I gotta send you, give me your phone number. I'm gonna text you where Joe Biden was at the National Educators Association and is like talking about charter schools and stuff. Anyways, he's back at my house last week. We're doing a little kitchen remodel. And he taps me on the shoulder, he goes, Hey, I voted. And I'm like, sweet, who'd you vote for? He's like, Donald J. Trump. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. But it was just interesting because it kind of like Right in my face going like, you are who we're trying to figure out right yeah. now. And um, and I don't know that I convinced him, right? I think he probably sure. was leading that way. Um, so that gets into Tony Gonzalez. You have Can I say one thing about that before yeah, you go, go ahead. forward? So I, I, I was blown away during the RNC convention. I had such low expectations. I mm-hmm. thought it was going to be a circus with a lot of clowns, you know, performing. Um, but they were incredibly strategic about how they put what I would argue is the single best spokesperson forward to make the case on whatever the issue is they were talking about, mm-hmm. right? And and um, whether it's school choice, whether it's life, uh, whether it's Herschel Walker talking mm-hmm. about how Trump's not racist and he knows it because he's known him 35 years, um, whether it was hostage re- recovery, whether, mm-hmm. it, you know, hostage rescues. I mean, they, they had uh, take 15, 20 issues, mm-hmm. any number of which I think spoke to different subsets of the electorate, where I think once we really dig into the data, we're going to see Trump overperform. It's not just Hispanic and black voters. It's, mm-hmm. it's white working class. It's union members. It's mm-hmm. law enforcement. It's military. I imagine Trump significantly overperformed military, mm-hmm. although we'll have to see. So I guess, again, this gets back to what we were talking about before. How do we – How do you know, Trump is very – he was putting a coalition together in a more strategic way than I think that people mm-hmm. realized. Um, and a lot of that got ignored and it got, you know, kind of papered over or didn't get the attention it deserved because of Russia and impeachment and mm-hmm. his whatever, his whatever decisions he would make day to day. I wish they could have been more focused, more strategic, more disciplined. I think they would have gotten a lot further. I wish he had taken COVID more seriously rhetorically in February and March. If he had early on said, look, we're going to take this seriously um, I'm going to not do press conferences. I'm going to let my task force p- speak. I'm going to let experts speak. We're going to make the right decisions. We're going to balance public health with the economy. I think I think that would have lessened some of some of the damage uh, that was done. But look, this election was about Trump, and it was about COVID at the national level. Mm-hmm. If it had been about the economy and Biden not being fit, and been about you know defund the police and 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 uh, the Supreme Court, Trump had a good chance to win it. Um, I do think that if you look at these states, I do think there are some legitimate questions to be asked. Why are they not matching signatures in Georgia? Um, does the Supreme Court step in on the Pennsylvania lawsuit? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw their filing lawsuit today in Wisconsin. But let's not be foolish about it. The odds that Trump is going to even win in one state where he's apparently lost are like 1%. And at this point, he's got to win two or three states, depending on which mm-hmm. state. So it's, it's 1% times 1% times 1%, right? So you can move the decimal point over several several spots. We got to stop though and recognize the fact that Trump got 74 million votes is significant. Mm-hmm. It is significant. In fact, there's a good chance if Trump doesn't run next time or if he's somehow not the nominee, our next nominee will not get 74 million votes. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Yes. And I know this, there's this idea that Trump is, you know, sort of um, not able to grow the party and, and he risks us with majority voters and suburban white women and whatever, college educated white women. And there's some arguments there, but the fact that he grew that vote from 63 million to 74 million with all the negativity yep. in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of the first man-made economic yep. shutdown in history, yep. it, it speaks to the power of that agenda mm-hmm. and the opportunity that Republicans have to, again, take the good, keep it, 
shape it, build on it, and then try to isolate the mm-hmm. bad, and we can be in a much stronger position. Uh, you mentioned cultural issues, and I thought I was going to ask you, Matt, if you remember y'all's internal polling with, with uh, Tony's race, because one of the things that stood out to me, you know, two of the races I was focused on were in suburbs, more middle class and a little upper middle class, not, not super wealthy suburban districts. So we go in and poll, and, you know, a lot of what we're focused on is those independent voters, right? And these are, these are people who, down a list of issues, tend to lean more Democrat on most – I mean, you, you ask them about health care, Medicaid expansion, various different issues, and a lot of times they're leaning Democrat within their viewpoint, and you're trying to get as many of them as possible to vote Republican. The – of course, two issues that we had – that they were solidly with the Republic. So you have Republicans, independents, Democrats, and you're kind of going, what issues do the independents align with Republicans on? There were two issues. One was defunding the police, which ended up being, and I know you've got a lot of experience that here in Austin, Matt, and y'all are dealing with city council races and stuff. And then, but also even in Tony's race, realizing, okay, this, this law enforcement issue that appeals. The other one, uh, was monuments. And I don't know if y'all ever tested that, but, um, Literally, these independent voters, I mean, you were like, should statues of the founding fathers come down? And they were like, absolutely not. And you're like, okay, should statues of Confederate soldiers, which by the way, there aren't a bunch in our district, but you're just like, I don't know, do you want to tear them down? And they're like, no. And that was not an issue that I anticipated. Now, what what I do understand is that the higher up the income scale you go, the more they want to do that. So if you go into like Collin County, Highland Park, you know, some of those areas, then that's when they want to start trying to basically take down history. It's an interesting point of like where some of these cultural issues also, you have this uh, working class divide where if you've, you know, if you've gotten a master's degree and you're making over $150,000 a year, you're like, who needs statues? Let's just keep the peace and whitewash history. And then you go into like working middle class, Hispanic, white, black, and they're just going, why, why would I do that. So I wasn't sure if you had any other insights from some of the polling that y'all were doing or what y'all were looking at. On yeah. The I mean, look, we were, we, we polled basically twice, um, after Labor Day, we, we polled in early, uh, mm-hmm. or mid September, we were down 42, 41, a lot of undecided path to victory was clear. We felt really good about it. In fact, we felt so good about it. We got a story in the Washington Examiner about the poll. We sort of leaked the poll and put it out there and used it to raise money. And, and also to, to signal to outside groups that we had a, a real chance to win. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was kind of a suspicion that we really didn't have a chance to win. Mm-hmm. We had a runoff, we had a recount, yep. we were out of money. She had massive amounts of money. And so a lot of people didn't think we had a chance. We, we our view was that we had to sort of constantly prove over time, day to day, week to week, that we were going to move up the list of competitive seats hmm. and be worthy of the investment that we were going to were going to need to have a chance to win. But we polled again, uh, I'm trying to remember the timing of it, but I want to say maybe three weeks before the election, probably in the middle of or the early part of the early voting window, we were up five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a real dilemma. You guys have probably been in a situation like this. If you're up, do you, it's weird when you're, when you're slightly behind or tied, it makes perfect sense to put a, put it, to put it, to put it out or leak it or really mm-hmm. donors or whatever, you want people to, to feel the urgency. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, should you, should you tell the other side you're up? Should mm-hmm. you let them raise money off that? Should yep. you let your team feel complacent? But we felt good about it. I mean, we felt it was uh, maybe slightly high, but, but it was, we still had room to grow and we still felt really good. And, we, and mm-hmm. so we were really confident we were going to win. Um, in terms of the polling, you know, I would say a couple things were really struck out for us, you know, and the lessons from the Gonzales thing were, were a few, few, few quick ones. One is, um, the single most important thing is candidate recruitment, and the candidate has to reflect the district they're running in. 
right? And so, uh, you know, a Filipino female candidate who didn't have a lot of ties to the district, who didn't live in the district, Mm -hmm. who was living in D.C., um, who was very progressive on issues, was not a good fit for this district. She mm-hmm. wants to go run in an urban district somewhere. She's probably a pretty good pretty good fit. Mm-hmm. Not a good fit in this district. Um, versus, you know, Tony Gonzalez, six kids, Catholic, 20-year Navy vet, Spanish-speaking, parents are Mexican immigrants. He'd had a tough life when he was a kid. I mean, just, you know, kind of the embodiment of the American dream in a lot of ways. And that's something I think people in that district understand and, and see that they, they either have lived it themselves, maybe not the same way, or they want their kids to live the, the life he's lived, right? So they, there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. I think, two, the real reason – well, we won, I think, for two reasons. One, we outworked the other, the other side. And I know, Luke, you're a big believer in ground game. Mm-hmm. And you have been. So why you've had a lot of success in competitive primaries over the years. Um, in this side, you know, you, I'm, I'm very unused to a situation where one side decides to do ground game and the other yeah. side doesn't, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we'll you, talk about that a little bit too. Usually it's like marginal, you yes. know, wh- yeah. which, which neighborhoods, which precincts yeah. you're targeting or how much yeah. you're doing or whatever. But, you know, I mean, we, we knocked, I think, 27,000 doors the last six weeks. We made something like, uh, I don't remember the numbers, 100,000 yep. calls the last six weeks. And they, they, they were doing Zoom conference calls, you know, that was yeah. it. We were doing Zoom too. Um, but Tony was in all 29 counties twice the last 60 days. He was in 14 counties on Election Day alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, out, we outworked her. And in this district, it matters. Yes. It's a district where, you know, they know if you don't show up when you're campaigning, you're never going to show up if you So, so you, this district, just to give our listeners and viewers uh, some context, it is, I think, geographically bigger than every state east of the Mississippi. I might be wrong, but it's like... It's close, yeah. It's massive. Okay, it's massive. so it starts in San Antonio, goes to El Paso. Yep, um, and then down to the border, down to Del Rio and Eagle Pass. Basically five hours north to south, eight hours east to west, 29 counties. I mean, it's just massive, so absolutely massive. I'm going to use this to jump into like Zapata County, Cameron County. So yeah. one of the things that, I mean, multiple stories have been written on is these heavily Hispanic counties along the border, and a lot of that overlaps with 23, where Trump increase the margin 20, 30 points. And then you saw Republicans as well, just do incredibly well. It's interesting to me because, and I'm sure if you asked Tony, he would attest to this fact, but when you drive out into these rural West Texas, Hispanic counties, because these are, these are not urban, they're not suburbia, right? These are just rural working class, heavily Hispanic counties. Uh, they're not all wearing masks everywhere, just to let everyone know. I mean, like, when we talk about the, you know, Trump taking off his mask and then MSNBC freaking out, that's not offending people in Zapata County, okay? If you go down to Zapata County, you drive in, this is where, I think, Matt, to your point, Democrats make an error when they kind of live in their bubble. Totally. And then they're going, I can't possibly go out and endanger all these people's lives. And you go, go out to West Texas. Just because it's 60% Hispanic doesn't mean these people are thinking the same way they're thinking in Alamo Heights, you know, San Antonio. It's a different culture. It's a different group of people. And they're not viewing the world the same way. And I know we talk about that with COVID because if if COVID was your big issue, you were much more likely to vote for Biden. If the economy was your big issue, much more likely to vote for Trump. Um, So, Brendan, you know, we saw this. These stories started popping up a couple weeks before the election, how Democrats were starting to freak out because – they were realizing the fact that we haven't knocked a single door in six months might affect us in some of these <laughs> local races. So what are you what's some of your takeaways from their approach there? Yeah, I mean they they definitely fought with one hot, one hand tied behind their back. They especially down ballot, right? I, yep. I think at the presidential level, obviously that's different at its yes. own category. Yes. But these these state rep candidates, state senate candidates, congressional candidates, they rely on that. People want to see you, they want to see you out. 
and about and to your point, yeah, these folks are going to the grocery store, they're shopping, they're, they're you know, to the extent they could, sending their kids to school. Yeah. Um, I know back in my home county, which is a small rural county in the school district there, you know, overwhelmingly people voted to have their kids continue to, yep. to go to school. Um, so it is a different reality. And I think part of the problem is that, you know, we kind of, we pick on the left, I think rightfully so, if we're looking at middle America's flyover country. And they, they talk a lot about the border and they talk a lot about the wall and, and the kids in cages and all that stuff. But how many of those operatives, how many of those candidates actually went down to the border, spent some time, listened, talked to people, asked about mm-hmm. the wall, right? There was that famous scene with Jim Acosta showing up and just looking like a fool, you know, and not doing real journalism, talking to people, right? I mm-hmm. think if they would have done more talking to people, more listening, they would have gotten a better sense of it. And things are nuanced there, right? Mm-hmm. People there on the border in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, they do actually care about border security. They actually do understand that there are bad guys on the other side of the river who can threaten them, right? At the same time, do they want everyone to be, you know, immediately uh, deported back to the their country of origin or their or dreamers to be deported? No, not necessarily. Um, it's, it's a nuanced thing. And I think that sometimes the Democrats just sort of had this blanket overview of people, you know, Hispanic voters must agree with us on these things. Mm-hmm. And it was just a total error. Um, and if you spend any time da- down there, you know it, it's more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. And that also, especially in the Valley, the, the human touch is super important. The getting to know you, to look someone in the face, to sit down with them, to build relationships, that is critical uh, if you're a candidate, if you're an organization trying to build support. So I think that they totally whiffed on that, and it, it came back to bite them. The, the one little bit of pushback I'll give to that is, because I agree with that, but I do feel like Republicans for the last, you know, I don't know, 10 years that I've been watching, their, their view of Hispanic outreach has been show up, you know, pay people, like have people down there on the border, show up to places the governor spends a lot of time in the Rio Grande Valley. The lieutenant governor, like, we want to go down there. We want to be seen. We want to, you know, do that. And, uh, you know, Trump didn't make a single trip to the Rio Grande Valley that I know of. And so the point is there, there's something that was tapped into mm. Hispanic rural voters. from And, and you know, I'm fascinated. I, I almost want to, like, spend some money. Maybe y'all want to chip in uh, just so we could pull these Hispanic rural voters because it's like – what what TV do you watch? Where do you consume your news? Like, I don't know these people, to be completely honest, and I really want to know because wherever you're following America, whatever version you saw, you significantly picked. I mean, in Zapata County, you have like 1,000 people that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 that voted for Donald Trump in 2020. It's like, who are you? Where do you get your information? What do you, because Donald Trump didn't show up. Republicans didn't even show up. And all of you were just like, eh, you know what? I don't like that. I'm going this direction. I'm totally changing my behavior for the last 15 years. Um, and well, there's something about how whatever they were seeing. Does that make sense? So It does. No, I, but again, I think that the presidential level is different, right? Yes. He's a celebrity they've known for yes. 30 years. Maybe they were watching The Apprentice. Um, that was their first you know, yeah. kind of introduction. But, but he is so ubiquitous that... You know, I don't know the answer to that either. Yes. I think it would be interesting to find out where they get their information. But it might be Facebook, right? It might just be on their phones, you know, yep. watching videos. It might be um, just, you know, word of mouth and that sort of yep. thing. So I think it's a good question. But I think that is a separate – to me, you know, that sort of level yes. is definitely its own thing. But yes. again, you know, we can surmise and we can go back and check whether we were right or wrong or somewhere in between. But yep. you have to think that the – that generally speaking, these folks love America. They know the difference between – 
this side of the Rio Grande and that side, mm-hmm. right? Whether they're from, uh, they themselves are from Mexico originally or, or their grandparents or, or Honduras or El Salvador or whatever, mm-hmm. they know what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. Immigrants tend to be extremely patriotic, mm-hmm. right? Second generation, third generation, there's a lot of veterans down there. Like they, there's a lot of people serving in the border patrol, serving in the police. Um, I think they probably, you know, I, I think there's probably something to this that they probably just felt this overall attack on American values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. across the board. And, and again, we, we really do need to, to answer that question, yep. but that's sort of my hunch. Yep. Any other thing to add to that, Matt? No, I, that, I think that's, that's great. And I do think it's a huge question. It's something we ought to dig into. Was it because they agreed with Trump on these issues, mm-hmm. the, called the cultural issues, on, on, on building the wall in the urban areas, on enforcing the law? Is it that they were afraid of what the Democrats wanted mm-hmm. to do, defund mm-hmm. the police, yep. Medicare for all, um, Green New Deal, anti-energy, and yep. anti-gun? You know, most Democrats, not only do they never near the never go to the border, but they're never really in rural areas where they see what average people yep. live like. And you see this right now. You know, if you look at uh, look, the, the other thing that really happened this election is the Democrats became even more coastal, mm-hmm. representing more and more and more elite yep. people in urban areas. Yep. And we kind of, in some ways, we kind of took the suburbs back, right? Yep. Picked up, I think, thirteen or now fourteen U.S. House seats. Yep. Not one. This is an amazing stat. I think I have this correct. I believe not one U.S. House member lost re-election. Correct. That is astounding. Yep. Because we got some, we got some mediocre people in there, <laughs> in tough districts who probably had some good challengers running against them who were being outspent three or four to one, and that's not that. You know, that was an amazing stat for Texas. Mm. But to sit to look nationwide yep. and look at all the suburban districts yep. we lost yep. uh, last time and that they were going after this time, that's astounding. So I, I do think we got to study this Hispanic thing mm-hmm. more. Um, I, I don't think that means that Trump and only Trump can can hold those gains yep. with Hispanics. But to your point, yep. we should go back and find out why someone voted for Hillary in 2016 and why they voted for Trump in 2020 against all kinds of kind of cases that were being made to them, right, yep. on racism and yep. – COVID. I and mean, these the people were told for the last four years, he's called you all rapists. He hates, you know? like, yeah, he, he hates literally Hispanics, hates people right, with your right. color. Yeah. If, if, if you ever get to be a federal judge, he's going to disparage you because you're Hispanic and he thinks you raped somebody at some point. And by the way, he's going to cage your kids. And they're like, cool, I'm voting for him. And you're going, wait a second. This does not, it seems like the George W. Bush brand is what should appeal to you more. At least that's what, you know, has been told. So um, the, the, Going back, and, and I'm going to get off this culture issue here uh, shortly because I do want to talk to you about Austin defending the police and kind of some of the stuff there. I think that gets us in the next session a little bit too to, to start that discussion. One of the things I've also thought about is, you know, we talk about the left and the coastal elites pushing more aggressively. And part of me wonders, and I, in fact, this is my opinion, um, it could be wrong, is that those elites push more when Republicans are actually willing to engage in the culture battle. So when we kind of shrink back from it and go like, let's do everything we can to avoid it, then they're like, cool, status quo is fine because the truth is outside of government, the other cultural pillars are all pushing the the country left. No, okay? no doubt. So basically- Higher education, it, it, yeah, Hollywood. They have public sports, schools. Sports. They have higher edge. They have all the sports. They have yep. you know Hollywood. I mean, I, literally every single one of the shows my wife and I enjoy- I just have to go, ugh, like for at least two or three minutes every single episode, right? So you go, okay, they already have those pillars. So basically, when we don't engage on the culture battle in the realm of politics, Mm -hmm. we don't actually, the left doesn't 
engage aggressively on the realm of politics because the truth is they're already kind of winning the culture and moving the country a little left, little by little, so they don't need to. It's when we actually are willing to talk, engage, advance policy, have discussions, that all of a sudden they're willing to step to the plate and then they start saying things that nobody agrees with, right? Um, so that that kind of is, again, yet to be seen, and, and it's not 100% provable. So the truth is it's just an idea. Um, but I, I appreciate both of y'all's kind of thoughts on this because I do think it's going to be a conversation. In Austin, we have a, a situation where the police were actually defunded, right? Um, in fact, in DFW, one of the things we said was uh, we told people – because we started testing this whole defund the police thing. And one of the one of the questions was, do people even think the police will be defunded, right? Like if you're in Arlington, if you're, you're like, okay, I've watched it. So we put on all of our literature, I mean, basically they defunded the police in Austin. And if you give Democrats the Texas House, they'll push it statewide. No it was doubt. like, look, by the way, they've already shown us they're going to in the Lone Star State. And so thank you, for that, Matt, um, and uh, <laughs> wow, we're glad yeah. we're glad uh, we're glad that they were far enough left as a city council to actually pass that policy. Uh, but uh, in your opinion, you know, y'all got a couple successful city council races to runoffs um, this cycle, and I know came just short in the District Forty Seven race. Um, so, what are some of the lessons learned in Travis County about the numbers? I saw. I think it was even like Chip Roy did better in Travis County this time than he did two years ago. Uh, in the tech yeah, look, so. I mean, it, it, Travis County is the bluest county in the state. It's a very, very tough county. Yep. Um, and it's actually, you know, there, there are a lot of parts of the state, a lot of parts of the country where Trump has been a benefit to the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Um, you know, Rust Belt, mm-hmm. you know, white working class voters, West, Southwest, um, Southeast probably are all areas where Trump's been a, a, a benefit. He has not been a benefit in Travis County, just just electorally. Yep. I mean, the yep. num- it's not not my opinion; it's the numbers. Yep. Yep. Uh, he got uh, he got twenty seven point six percent of the vote in Travis County in twenty sixteen. Uh, Cruz in twenty eighteen got twenty three percent, and I've got to look. I don't know that we know the exact number, but in the early vote it was twenty five percent this time okay. for Trump. So, um, you know, Brendan understands this. We're not going to elect candidates in mm-hmm. targeted races or certainly not in countywide races when at the top ticket you're getting 25% of the vote, right? So we had five target races. We lost three of them. We got McCall and Roy over the line. They both did better in Travis mm-hmm. County. We worked really hard on both those races. But, yeah, we lost House District 47 by about 1,300 votes. Um, the the Libertarian candidate got more votes than the margin. So mm-hmm. that was very winnable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to be much more as a party. We got to be much more um, – I guess ruthless is the word, or maybe the word is observant about third-party candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, state party decided not to sue uh, to, to kick libertarians off the ballot, even though the Democrats are suing to get the Greens off the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't, you know, put one one hand behind our back while the the, the, the Democrats are using both their hands. Um, the, the Green candidates and libertarians both use the same pr- process to get on the ballot. So yep. if, if one of them should be thrown off, they both should get thrown off. But uh, so we lost House District 47. Unfortunately, Jeff Rose, our, our third uh, court of appeals chief justice, got beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we lost our county commissioner, placed, uh, place three office, not really all that close to mm-hmm. margin, unfortunately. So yep. um, but, yeah, look, those issues are are, are building. Mm-hmm. Um, the homeless disaster keeps getting mm-hmm. worse. Uh, the point-in-time study from last year showed a 46% increase in the unhoused po- homeless population mm-hmm. last year, and that's with the camping ordinance only being in effect for half the year. Yep. Um, and when you combine that with defund the police by the $150 million authority they gave themselves to cut 
that much from the budget. They cut $20 million immediately, and they said they could cut up to another $130 million and move it to other government programs. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. And uh, when you add to that the fact they're going to decriminalize and really – it's not even decriminalize. They're going to decide not to prosecute specific types of crimes starting mm-hmm. in January when we have a new county attorney and a new district attorney. Mm-hmm. Sex work, criminal trespass, theft, what they call petty theft, anything under $100. Um, these kinds of things that would normally get prosecuted, mm-hmm. they get arrested. You get arrested and then you get prosecuted. It, you know, it keeps – restores – keeps order. Mm-hmm. Um, prosecutorial discretion is, is uh, uh, a very solemn responsibility that yeah. prosecutors have. And it's intended not so that they can make value judgments on whether they like the law or not mm-hmm. or they think something that's a crime is not a crime. It's, it's meant to say, look, you, you can't prosecute everyone. You have limited time, limited resources. Maybe someone committed a crime, but maybe there was an, you know, a, a circumstance that, that should, should require some leniency. Maybe they're yep. a first-time offender. Maybe they've offered some information that's, you know, that can mitigate the, the, the punishment. They're just going to decide we're not going to prosecute these crimes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, on the way out, apparently, our DA just announced that something like 120 of the 180 people arrested during all the violent protests in Austin are not going to be pr- prosecuted. So that, uh, yeah, things are going to get worse in Austin before they mm-hmm. get better. And we're going to have to have a silent majority of Austin residents rise up and say, mm-hmm. I don't care about R versus D. I care about a safe neighborhood. I yep. care about not having homeless people everywhere and having the population explode. I care about not cutting one-third of our police budget. Yep. Until we get to that place, I mean, the fact that they passed a 20% property tax increase in perpetuity for a ridiculous um, Project Connect, you know, transportation system that is not going to be uh, in in effect for at least 10 years, may never be in effect ever, has massive assumptions related to federal funding, and takes on considerable debt, um, shows me that the electorate has not woken up yet. Yep. In, in Austin, in Travis, in Travis County, County yep. unfortunately. Yep. Well, and I would I would add to that. HD forty seven is is actually where I live. It's Lakeway, Bee Cave, Steiner Ranch. Yes. For those yep. who aren't familiar with this area, you know, it is a suburban area. It's an area that yep. historically you know had gone maybe fifty five to sixty percent Republican for the previous mm-hmm. rep Paul Workman, who'd gotten mm-hmm. reelected multiple times. Um, those voters, I believe, can and will come out in the next election cycle to support the Republican candidate. If we get a good candidate, we get back to work, we don't have a presidential to contend with, and it's a little bit more of a traditional midterm that we're looking at, I actually think Republicans can pick that back up, especially if we focus on issues like Matt laid out, um, safe neighborhoods, transportation, taxes, and and the disaster that the Austin City Council is creating in our beautiful city of Austin. I think that there are enough people there to, to, to vote in a nonpartisan way, but to say, we've got to do something to rein these guys in. So we have to highlight those problems. We have to tie those problems uh, to the radical Democrats on the city council and the, the members of the Texas House who won't stand up to them. I think if we do that, we can pick that seat back up. Again, those are those voters that are suburban, highly educated, a little bit higher income uh, you know, voters. And I think they're very gettable because they have voted for Republicans in the past. But there again, that's a situation where it's going to take talking about the right issues at the right time to really motivate them to go and vote for Republicans. Uh, so, Matt, are you open to making Austin a capital district? Very. Yeah, look, there, there, there are a range of things that are on the table. Um, that sort of D.C. capital district kind of model or, the, or I, even yeah. I think maybe Mexico maybe has that with Mexico City. I'm not really sure. Look, how you define it, it matters. There are a number of ideas on the table. Um, there are less homeless people in Mexico City. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I'm not. It's, and that's it, a much bigger city. I mean, you know, if it, you date, 30 million people. Yeah, you have to take like all the little like colonias that are like you know eight sure. by eights and not count them as homeless. But you know, well, they're, they they're, have far more pro- poverty in Mexico City, but yeah, far fewer do. homeless. So it's uh, even as a percentage. But but no, what's astounding about this is is look, 
if you look at Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and Honolulu, four cities that have basically done all the things Austin's trying to do. I've been to all four of these cities in the last two, two and a half years. Mm. I've witnessed firsthand their, the homeless challenges they have. I'm not, not an expert. I'm not like going yep. there and studying it you know, every minute of every day, but yep. I've seen it as, as you would when you travel. Yep. Um, Austin has basically said, they li- they're looking at those models and saying, we mm-hmm. want to replicate that. Literally, from, from, from decriminalizing mm-hmm. petty theft to camping to all kinds of things. Um, they, you know, they're, they're defunding the police. I mean, all these cities are yep. basically ahead of them. Los Angeles has a homeless problem as a share of its population that can never be solved. Mm. It is going to be there 100 years from now. Mm. Uh, if, if, if we're still, you know, roaming the earth 100 years from now, it's going to be there. Um, San Francisco is not quite to that level, but it's bad. Seattle, if you haven't seen Seattle is Dying video, I encourage everyone to go, go on YouTube and watch it. I mean, it is eye-opening. Honolulu um, is similar. Honolulu is one of the most expensive cities, not just in the country, but in the world. Um, you can understand why. It's hard to get to. It's hard to get supplies there, et cetera, uh, if scarcity issues. But the, the interesting thing about Honolulu is they, they literally have parts of the beach that are effectively no-go zones. Hmm. Um, police don't go there. I, I'm not talking about like they have a few tents. Like it is literally almost like, you know, Burning Man. Yep. Um, you know, year-round, 365 days a year. And with the weather there, they can live in tents outdoors comfortably for, you know, year-round. So what concerns me is, you know, we're not at a level where our problem can't get solved, but three, five, seven, ten years from now we're going Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, can we we interrupt what what we've done Mm -hmm. from a city hall standpoint and can we turn the the direction back? Um, You know, for me, the... um, the point is, first of all, we were getting 90, the police department says we were getting 95% compliance with the camping ordinance and with the sit-lie mm-hmm. ordinance before. So the idea that, that we were, quote-unquote, criminalizing homelessness and throwing homeless people in jail is just not factually mm-hmm. correct. Only if you were unwilling to comply were you ever put in jail. And there were several steps before you get to that. The, yep. the police don't want to throw a homeless person in jail, yep. put them yep. in that prison pipeline. They know they're not going to you know, be able to get yep. bail. They're not going to yep. be able to get help. It's not something that they want to do. But if you're being violent, if you're refusing to, to, to abide by the law, you have to have that as an option mm-hmm. or else we're, we're a lawless society. So, so number one, there was no crisis. Number two, the homeless population is exploding. I believe you're going to see 50, 75, maybe 100% increase in the unhoused population this year, even with COVID. Uh, and I think the, the count is way undercounted. Um, and then when you combine that again with the defund the police thing, it's it's a real problem. Then you add in the new county attorney and new district attorney who I think are probably not even yep. going to enforce the law if we weren't able to put the camping ban back yep. in place. It gets to everything you're talking about, which is maybe going to a, to a you know federal district, maybe um, you know disallowing annexation and allowing yes. annexed populations yes. to vote. It goes to uh, to perhaps seizing you know funds and funding some portion. I think the governor's looking at perhaps basically having state control over maybe downtown yep. in some way. That doesn't help neighborhoods, you know. Yep. Um, yep. You know, not allowing rollback rate elections uh, in cities that defund the police. Look, Austin is the only city that's done this, Yep. right? Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, yep. uh, two of the three have minority mayors. Two, two of the three have black, black mayors. Uh, San Antonio has what I would argue is probably the most progressive of the three yep. mayors. 100%. They have, every single one of them have activists pushing to yep. do this kind of stuff, and they're saying no. We're yep. not doing it. The, the mayor of Houston and the police chief in Houston, who used to be our police chief here, has said, no, actually, we're going to come in Austin and recruit your police officers because their morale is down. They can't get overtime pay. They can't graduate cadet classes who have gone through training. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. Um, they, I think, cut overtime pay for police in Dallas, and the mayor was so pissed off about it. I mean, he just went after the yep. city council. Hey, Eric I, Johnson, he was a former Democrat state rep. And honestly, yeah. he's my favorite big city mayor in, uh, in Texas because he's – I mean, he literally has continued to just – 
push back to any of the people that have tried to make Dallas some progressive bastion and just said, wait a second, these are not common sense ideas, which is was how he approached uh, you know things as a legislature. A legislator, um, you said something about DAs, and I want to get uh, throw this over to Brendan because um, you mentioned you know some of these suburban voters trying to get them back. Okay, so uh, Matt mentioned the fact that these incoming DA county attorneys are basically saying, "I'm not going to prosecute the crimes, even if you make homelessness a crime again. I'm not going to prosecute it." Right, and uh, one of my criticisms of, the, of a lot of the Republican plans that have been brought about these defunding the police, the violence issues and stuff. Uh, we had a whole podcast where we talked to a couple attorneys about some of the proposals in Florida right now um, versus some of the proposals that are being talked about in Texas. The good thing is we're talking about them and we will refine them. But the majority of the Republican plan that was unveiled prior to November was all about increasing criminal penalties for rioting, for violence, for all these things. But the problem is that they're happening in big cities where your law enforcement, meaning your district attorneys and all that, are not going to prosecute, right? So if I take eight things and make them crimes, or if I take crimes and increase them, like the truth is it's a good headline. It's good to get Democrats on record on saying they don't want the crime increased, but it's not actually going to decrease the crime because guess what? If I know I can go to the streets and nobody's going to arrest me, and if I do get arrested, I'm not going to get charged, I have no incentives. DeSantis pushed, I mean, he was pushing stuff like, and a lot of people said, oh, he wants people to run over people. But he basically said, hey, if you're trying to break into somebody's car and they're in a car and they're surrounded by a mob, they can drive and they're protected, their liability is protected because you're threatening their physical, you know, being, uh, if you're a public school employee, if you're a government employee and you go violently protest, you lose your pension that was talked about, which would freak out, I think, a lot of people. But that was what DeSantis said. Hey, if you're if you're saying I don't I want civil government and I want all the benefits and the pension that comes with it, but I also want to go riot in the street and throw a Molotov cocktail at somebody, you know, well, these things don't compute. And so uh I just I thought about that when you mentioned that because one of the things we've been talking about for the last honestly several months on this program has been when we come into the session, we've got to think of policies that are gonna actually lead to something because yeah. we have big city prosecutors who aren't gonna prosecute the law. So if you're looking at the law and you're saying, I wanna make this a crime and do this, and do this, it it might affect rural Texas. It might help you in some of the suburbs. It's not gonna help you in the inner cities because the DAs don't care. Um so Brendan, you mentioned House District 47, better chance in two years because there are some things that might win those people back. What are some policies? Because you're somebody who thinks about policy and ideas. What are some policies and ideas that you think could be advanced, could be talked about uh, in a positive way to to shape the conversation in a way that gets some of these people to vote Republican in two years? Sure. Well, I do think the law and order argument works, can work. Mm-hmm. I mean, these folks do not want to bring their families downtown and go to a, a UT football game or go to the, the Austin Central Library downtown and have to deal with that situation, deal with um, being in danger with their children. I mean, I know people in my neighborhood who've expressed that concern who won't go downtown mm-hmm. because of that, uh, who won't go to Town Lake and walk or run or bike. So I think talking about those issues, talking about homelessness and law and order in a way that's that's rational and reasonable and, and points out that the crazy people on the city council have done this and they can fix this. Otherwise, yes, it's going to take um, House Republicans, tex- you know, Texas House Republicans to take real action. I mean, the, the House of Representatives has the power to do things like cut off funding to cities mm-hmm. that do certain things, right? So we may need to look at some of that. Um, so I think law and order is something, again, that's common sense that you have to think about in terms of families. What do mm-hmm. families care about? Parents. 
They care about safety and security. Um, you know, in that district and in a lot of those suburban districts, education, um, you know, they feel pretty good about where they mm-hmm. are, so they're not as motivated by necessarily helping folks in other mm-hmm. parts of the city, other parts of the state. So as much as I love school choice, and I think that's a, a great issue, I think that actually helps with different segments more than suburban voters. Yeah, more like the lower middle income are more affected Absolutely. than your higher income. The yeah. people who are struggling to get out of failing schools, um, minority uh, citizens, voters who want to look for better opportunity, I think that's an issue for them. It goes back to, uh, you know, it's why Dan Patrick says, right now we have school choice in Texas. If you have enough money, you move to the suburbs. That's where you know the schools are better. So, you know, if, you, if your income's high enough to, to live out in some areas in Travis County, you are, you're actually using school choice. You're choosing your school. You're moving out there. Right. It's a choice only... The wealthy, the well-off um, mm-hmm. can make, which is not fair, not right, and I would argue not even constitutional. That being said, you know the other issue that's popped up in those suburban areas in the Lake Travis uh, School District, for example, um, is the whole sex education issue, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it's not just that you know they're teaching you know third graders and second graders certain subjects at all. It's what they're teaching. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that Planned Parenthood is involved. So I've heard a lot of people who I would consider to be pretty moderate or even Democratic voters mm-hmm. who've kind of commented to me about what their kids are, are learning in school. So I do think what AISD did on that front was uh, was was bad in their view, and we'll have a, there can be a backlash to that. Mm-hmm. But I think people have to kind of get motivated and organized to uh, to point that out or to talk about it. So you have these these school districts that are well funded academically; they do well. Um, they're rated highly compared mm-hmm. to other schools. But what are they teaching, mm-hmm. right? So not only that, they're teaching. Um, values that maybe don't comport with what the parents want their kids to be taught. So that that is an issue that I think uh, has come up and will come up. So if the left continues to push these things, um, to push their agenda that is mm-hmm. so out of touch with, again, that average suburban voter, I think we can win on, on that particular topic. It's mm-hmm. all how we approach it. Mm-hmm. Again, it has to be defensive. It has to be, hey, that's wrong. That's something they should not be doing. We need to put a stop to it. Not necessarily we're going to impose our worldview on everybody, right? That's when you start to lose people. Again, the devil's in the details. Um, And then the other one, of course, property taxes, that's just a no-brainer. That's something Mm -hmm. that people are aware of. They they Mm -hmm. see it, they pay it, it comes out of their pocket. They're not happy with property taxes, so that's always got to be an important issue. And then transportation too, right? There's another example of where, you know, say you're coming from the Bay Area, you're coming from L.A. or Chicago or wherever, you know, your commute was pretty bad. Your traffic was pretty horrible. One of the reasons you came to Texas was for not only the opportunity, um, the jobs and, and the opportunity here, but, you know, for a better lifestyle. Nobody wants to sit in traffic for an hour, hour and a half. Nobody wants to fund transportation systems that don't work and people don't use, right? Mm-hmm. So I think arguing on, on that case, building more roads, you know, doing it, yes, in an environmentally friendly way, because these voters don't want to feel like they're hurting the environment, but building roads and having common sense solutions to transportation so they can get downtown as they need to, so they can get their kids to school. I mean, those are just some of the basic issues that I see, that I hear about when I'm out and about in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we, again, I'm not saying we have to you know, put other issues aside, but when you knock on that door, when you're at the pool in the summer talking to folks, I think you lead with those issues and then you can also add things as they come. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when you bring up some of these issues, I think, often Republicans, you know, some of these issues, we basically are just trying to not be wrong on them. So I talk about like public education, this cycle, um, the Tribune even wrote a piece on how, you know, James Tallarico in Round Rock and Tony Tinderholt in Arlington virtually had the same ad on public education, right? They both voted for a public education bill that increased funding and increased teacher pay. So they both run on it because it's something that those natural 
middle-class suburbs want, right? And so Republicans pushing some policies doesn't necessarily give them an edge on Democrats as much as it's like, okay, there are these core issues. You kind of make sure that they don't see you as out of lockstep with them. And then there are those issues where you can try to draw the line. I thought Republicans did a good job last session when they pushed a ban on a state income tax in the idea that they said, no, we're going to make sure that if Democrats are okay with the state income tax, that they're on record as okay on the state income tax. And so where we can say we're going to offensively defend certain things from Texans, it also puts Democrats in a place where they have to take a position. And and I do think that's going to be a legitimate question for the next six months is do Republicans in Texas want to do that? Do we want to take issues and actually debate issues and pass issues that Democrats are really unhappy with and potentially present themselves as more in line with the East and West Coast. Um, so Matt, any other issues that you think kind of coming up uh, that help us uh, at least, you know, drive certain discussions that are helpful in Texas? I agree with everything Brennan said. Um, I like that agenda a lot. I think there are probably some other areas. I definitely think we can always do more on the pro-life issue. Um, you know, I we are, as a state, still way behind on school choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure I understand why. It's... Um, very hard to understand. Ohio is now more more bold than we are. Florida has been more bold than we've been for ten years. Tennessee, go down the list. Um, everybody thinks we're just you know ruby red conservative mm-hmm. state, but on on life and on school choice, we are center right, maybe more mm-hmm. even more center than right actually in some ways. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely, there's some opportunities there. Uh, we got to go further on property tax. You know, you can't say three and a half percent, or we have a rollback rate election, and then Austin has a massive bond they put on mm-hmm. the ballot that they pass, which is a property tax increase. Yes. Right? That just totally makes that property tax bill they passed useless. Mm-hmm. And I imagine other cities are going to do that mm-hmm. uh, in the future. Uh, but but I, I like the point you made about, you know, putting some of these members um, on record because I think on, you know, the Democrats like to say that they're not for defunding the police. Well, yep. then let's, let's yep. show it. Yep. Let's show it. Um, let's, let, let's let them show it. And, again, in Dallas and Houston, San Antonio, they haven't done that. They have mm-hmm. done it in Austin. And I assure you, the mayor of Austin, the city council, are going to fight anything the state tries to do. They're already doing that. Um, and, and I think uh, you'll see that from the probably the local city, local state reps and, 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 and city mm-hmm. council as well. Um, obviously, and I know, Luke, you've worked on this and care about this. I mean, ending you know, taxpayer-funded lobbying is going to be mm-hmm. a big push. Mm-hmm. Sure feels to me like the, the math and the politics on that have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of what happened at the end of last session. And and just more and more and more, we're seeing that cities, really four cities, mm-hmm. are working in a way that is counter, I would argue, not just to Texas values, but to uh, the majority of, of what mm-hmm. Texans believe. And so, you know, I know we're going to hear, you know, arguments that we're being hypocrites on local control. Mm-hmm. I, I always like to point out that... Um, you know, if if a local government is infringing on the liberty and the prosperity and the opportunity of a citizen, the state has a right to step in. Mm-hmm. And so if that's telling a landowner who has a mineral right, you can't frack because you live in Denton, Texas on your land mm-hmm. as if there was a lot of fracking going on in Denton, a college <laughs> campus. But, you know, that mineral mineral right holder has has rights. Mm-hmm. And if the uh, the city of Denton doesn't recognize it, the state can step in and preempt mm-hmm. them. Uber Lyft, you could take an Uber from yep. Westlake to the Austin airport but not home. That's a safety issue. That's a transportation issue. That's a mobility yep. issue. So preempting that made sense. Plastic bag man was insane. I have no issue there. I don't think we should preempt everything. So I think we got to be thoughtful on this police mm-hmm. thing. Um, maybe it is a federal district. Yeah. Maybe it's just seizing the funds and saying, look, we're, for, for cities that defund their police, we're going to seize the funds. 
We're going to ensure a baseline level of, of funding for police. Mm-hmm. If you want to affect policy and hiring and who your police chief is and stuff like that, is you can do that. But we're going to ensure that our state remains safe. Mm-hmm. Look, Austin is not safe. Uh, if you live here, you know that. There's 11 people who think it's safe. There are the 10 city council members and the mayor. We just broke <laughs> our record. All, I think it's our all-time record for homicides for the year with like six weeks to go in the year. Homeless populations through the roof. Fires are increasing. You, you just go down the list. Austin's far less safe um, than it's ever been. And I would argue that that's an issue the legislature is going to care about mm-hmm. because they have to come here. Mm-hmm. They have to spend 140 days here every year. They're here through interim charges and hearings and yep. other things from time to time. So they see Austin. They may not see Houston or Dallas or San Antonio or El Paso yep. or Fort Worth if they don't live there or they don't yep. travel there. But they see Austin more than they see any other city except the place they live in or mm-hmm. what's in their district. So I really do hope that they're going to be bold. I wish Justin Berry won House District 47 because we would have had a champion on this. Yep. Um, and, I, and we're not going to have one. I hope the governor steps up. I hope Don Buckingham and Donna Campbell in the Senate step up. We're going to have to find a champion in the House um, but I think we will. Yep. I want to touch on that. So he said two things I, I want to highlight. Taxpayer-funded lobbying is is absolutely a, a top issue because it's, it's a, it is bold. He used the word bold. It's also a long-term thing, right? If you look at states that have taken measures like that, um, ending, you know, certain power that unions have in places like Wisconsin and Michigan mm-hmm. and, and Indiana and places like that, it dried up the funding for the very people who were fighting against all these things. So that's the type of reform that I would argue is worth putting political capital into. If you're Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, the new mm-hmm. speaker, uh, presumptive speaker, uh, mm-hmm. Dade Phelan, then th- that's a big issue for you to champion and to make some long-term gains. Because to Matt's point, these are the folks that are fighting against the conservative agenda. These are the folks that if they do get into power um, are going to overturn everything you do. So to me, we should be looking for you know one or two or three big, bold things to do. And then I think there's a lot of little things that can get done that can make an impact that should, be, that should come in you know, right after that. And again, one of the things that the Republican Party is always thinking about, and again, a lot of it's driven by the election, is you know, do we go bold or do, are we cautious and, mm-hmm. and careful? Well, I think you can do a little bit of both. Be bold on things that have a lot of support, that will do yep. a lot of good, and are worth the potential political fallout, right? If you get it done, it's a big enough thing and has a, a transformational impact that it's worth doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the issue I will add, <clears throat> which won't surprise pretty much anybody who listens to me, but the issue I will add is that I do think, uh, I think banning sex change surgeries on minors in Texas is probably a cultural issue that, is, is a lot are, are in fact I think the uh, typical Republican established power structure is going to be really concerned about doing this. But I, I um, one uh, in all the polling that we did during the general, I mean, more Democrats want to ban it than want to keep it. Tons of independents want to ban it. Of course, Republicans are like ninety five percent, but Texans don't even know that we have about four or 500 kids as young as three, as young as, or as old as 17 that are being sexually transitioned to a different gender that, you know, are never hitting puberty, are having their, you know, genital mutilation surgery at 14, 15, about three, four, 500 kids, right? And this is an issue where if you make the left talk about it, they're trying to normalize it. They're trying to get it there. That's why Netflix is pushing all their crap and HBO is pushing their shows where mom's transitioning these little kids. People are freaking out about it and going to your point of like Westlake people. All of a sudden they start getting hit and their, you know, their kid says, hey, what if you're you know, 18 different genders? They're like, wait a second. I wasn't sure I was there. And I almost feel like what's happened is you know, 
again, coastal elites are pushing on media something that the normal person's not ready for. If Texas steps up and bans sex change surgeries on minors, first of all, we'll be the first state to do it. It's one of the few times Texas will lead on a cultural issue. And it is something that Democrats do not know how to vote on. Like, truthfully, if you said you're going to vote on banning the puberty blockers of minor children at eight so that they never hit puberty, are the Democrats really going to lockstep go, no, we want to ban that? First of all, what you're going to see is all the Valley Democrats are going to be like, yeah, ban it, (laughs) because they're going to be like, you do not know my districts. And so maybe some of the inner city elites and stuff go, but it's just not something that people are ready to do. Most people don't even know what's happening. It is. um, Those are the type of issues I agree with a lot of the different issues y'all have talked about. Um, But one of the things I've tried to focus on are what are those cultural issues that you can push that don't come across as crazy to, you know, your country club member who is a little concerned about some Republicans, but also are just kind of blatantly hard to swallow. And you go, hey, you shouldn't sexually transition a three-year-old. Oh, heck yes. (laughs) And then you go, hey, we just, we think we should ban that. And then let them go. The bathroom bill that was brought up, one of the things I think made it controversial is that a lot of people didn't know what we were trying to do. We're trying to keep some guy out of Target, the bathroom. Like, is this guys? Is it kids? Is it school kids? What's going on? You just go, hey, you shouldn't block the kid's puberty. You shouldn't give him a fake penis. It's probably something he should decide when he's an adult. Um, anyways, we don't have to get off on track, but I do add that because I do think, again, going back to as we think about these police issues and these other issues, I think they are clear issues that Texas has got a position on, right? So anything we can find there that we draw the line on that also shows Democrats on, on the other side. And Every single vote that the Democrat caucus is split 50-50 on this session, I'm super happy about, right? Because they have a legitimate split. We don't like to talk about it, but the truth is there are more cultural conservative Democrats and there are very progressive Democrats. Well, if you get 100 votes, it can take effect immediately. It can override a veto. It it doesn't even require a veto. So it gives you you some options. Yeah, we should – look – on issues where we can be bipartisan, if there's ways to support schools, if there's ways to do you know, COVID, COVID yep. relief, if there's you know, things we need to do about natural disasters. You know, get, this idea, though, that we're going to have some purple session again, I think, is just not realistic. Um, number one, we still have a good margin. Mm-hmm. Like we, if, if we had a two- or three- or four-seat margin, yeah. that, it might have had to be more, more purple, yep. perhaps, just from a number standpoint. Yep. Um, but number two, it, it's going to be inherently political because you have redistricting. Mm-hmm. Now, it's entirely possible the census isn't going to get completed to Congress so that they can decide apportionment until April, yep. which would mean they can't possibly do it in the regular session. So it may end up being a special session issue, and I'm actually not against that because I think redistricting is the kind of thing that just makes everything else impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you can focus on getting a budget and doing some other big things uh, and trying to get that done in 140 days and then just do a three- or four-week redistricting session and everyone's mad yep. at the end of it. But we got to figure out what what we want to you yep. know spend our capital on. So we yep. should see what the governor decides to make emergency yep. items. What he wants yep. to focus on, and then how the house you know turns out. We have yep. a new speaker. We can have some new chairs. We interested yep. to see how many Democrats he appoints. There's a lot of lot of question marks, a lot yep. of variables. I appreciate both of y'all. Uh, anything you want to say in closing, Brendan? Just observations on where Texas is headed. You know, I would just argue that uh, I feel a lot better than I thought I would in a post-election environment. Um, I wasn't. There weren't a lot of surprises. Um, I think in Texas, other than we didn't lose a single congressional seat that, you know, I actually thought maybe I thought we'd probably keep the Texas House. But I think the real question, uh, if you kind of look at it, is just what what is the trend to Matt's kind of point earlier? What, what are the trend lines? Where are we headed? Where are we going? And I think that the statewide margins were healthy enough where I feel 
better than I thought I would, where I feel like we can hold on to this, we can keep this going for the cycles to come. I still am going to be concerned. I'm still going to be uh, out there speaking out about what I think the conservative movement and the Republican Party needs to do to make sure that mm-hmm. we continue to win in the future. Um, but I feel pretty good about what the country did. I feel pretty good about what the state of Texas did in terms of this election. Uh, it tells me that, again, we're a center-right country, we have uh, conservative values, and that we are rejecting this sort of radical socialist left that wants to tear down our institutions. And again, I think that is that is the heart of what happened this election. It's the heart of what happened in 2016. It's the idea that America at its core is a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our faults and we have our flaws and we have our history. Mm-hmm. But at, at the same time, there is no better place in the world to live and there's no better state in this country to live than in than Texas. Um, that reminds me of one question, so sorry. I said we were closing. Uh, it gets to something both of you said. Do we have a problem, and I'm literally putting myself in this too because I get wrapped up in it. I, I don't know, like I'm pretty sure 99% of Republican operatives and consultants were surprised on election night. And and it happened in 2016. It happens again in 2020. But my point is, like I wasn't on a single conference call where every operative wasn't going, Trump's killing us and it's going to be horrible and blah, 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 blah. But like, there's not a whole, and one of the reasons I asked both of y'all on this, you know, podcast to have this conversation was because I feel like many of those people I talked to, you know, a month later, they're like, man, that was, whew, good thing we didn't happen. And two years later, if there's some uh, Trumpian person, they're like, oh, we're getting <laughs> killed and we're going to lose. And then, you know, people show up to vote and people care about it. So do we have a problem within like just the you know, established working class with the Republicans, because this gets to what you said, Matt, earlier. This is what I thought about at first, was when you talked about Trump has reshaped the party, but has he really, like, he hasn't he hasn't changed all the players in the party, right? And so is there a little lack of self-awareness that we sometimes have as players in the Republican Party to not go, maybe I shouldn't be re-wowed every two years when some of these people are going, I'm not okay with that. So, Brandon, you answer that first, then we'll... Throw yeah, it reminds me of what. Don't don't feel like y'all are bad mouthing your friends. By the way, sorry if I'm not at all. It reminds me of what my my boss at St. Edward's University is, where I, I teach political science. He's the department chair over there, and he says, Brendan, you know, I don't know that we should really call it political science. I'm not sure how much of a science it is. It's a human endeavor. There's a lot of um, unscientific things that happen, and although we try and measure it and control it and and yep. really boil it down, there's it's about people. And mm-hmm. I think that what I will tell you is that it's hard to measure these things. I definitely saw the energy and enthusiasm for Donald Trump going back mm-hmm. to 2016. I just didn't think the math would work out. This this last cycle, I remember spending time in Port O'Connor, Texas with all of my friends and family and cousins, and mm-hmm. there was this huge boat parade. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of boats, Trump, 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 flags everywhere. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't even realize that my uncle or my second cousin was that political, right? They'd never spoken out about anything before. But they were out there, you know, with their flag on their boats. That's hard to measure, right? Yep. They didn't necessarily participate with pollsters. They don't necessarily, you know, they might post on Facebook and that sort of thing. But how do we measure that? And how do we weigh that? That, that was the, the tricky part about the last couple of election cycles. So maybe the, the lesson here is um, take a little bit of this approach, the scientific approach, put it to the side for a minute, trust your gut a little more, trust what you're seeing and observing a little more, do a little more... Uh, observation and trying to include that more into your analysis. I, I've tried to do that. It's really difficult, though, mm-hmm. because again, I think a lot of these people just didn't want to be measured, mm-hmm. didn't want to necessarily 
uh, talk to the pollsters. And I'm not sure that they'll participate in studies going forward, that they're going to talk to the journalists about what happened, that they're going to tell us why they voted the way they did. And that's a challenge. Matt? Yeah, it's it's a great point. Um, I, I was... I was somewhat more bullish about yep. Trump in Texas, I think, than most mm-hmm. people were. Yep. Um, I, I don't know if that was just like stubbornness to stick to my original pr- prediction. I definitely felt like the last month he had significant momentum, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the race got bad after the first debate. Um, kind of the, the, the floor kind of fell, you know, fell out. And then, and then really that, that week or so from the first debate to when he got COVID and the kind of the, and it wasn't as much that he got it. It was that it kind of put the national public's yep. attention back on that issue yep. where he's losing. It's an issue where Biden has an advantage, whereas Trump has an advantage in the economy, Supreme Court, yes. safety in our cities. This is the big issue, and, and Biden has an advantage on it. But with the second debate, I mean, he really got momentum back. Mm-hmm. And then you saw the rallies and four or five of them a day, massive crowds. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Biden's traveling to Michigan by having, you know, 10 people show up something. Um, so the momentum was real at the end. Um, what I can tell you about Texas is there's two things to say about Texas. One is I think at the, at the statewide level, from the Trump campaign, RNC, Cornyn campaign, their, their belief was the higher – if we got to 12 to mm-hmm. 12 and a half million votes, it, it got to a, a place where you're going to have so many new voters voting that we don't know m- enough about mm-hmm. that it would give, uh, number one, Biden a chance to win Texas, but even more to the point, the Democrats' chance to take the Texas House back. And so one of the things we saw is we saw the number of people who voted that voted early versus the versus election day. That, that, that uh, equation is probably never going to be as lopsided as yep. it is right now. Yep. And that's because of COVID primarily. Yes. So they were all going to vote early. Right. Which which meant, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, a lot of our viewers and listeners aren't yeah. like super politico. So what, what you're saying is typically 50, 60% of voters vote early. The rest show up on election yeah. day. It, it's it was been, like 80-20 this time or yeah, something like that. Because it's been ticking up. I it, tell people it's mm-hmm. gone from like yeah. 40 to 45 to 50 to 52 it was 80. I mean, it was yeah, everybody the, voted early. And the big question mark, and, and my conclusion early on was that the, Dems, the Democrats were cannibalizing their election day vote by getting mm-hmm. people to vote earlier. Not that they were necessarily increasing the overall share, the overall pie in some significant, significant way. Um, although, you know, the vote did increase on both sides. So that's the first point, um, is that, that that behavioral shift, I think, gave some people who were analyzing who was voting and who wasn't some real concern. But look, the, there's two two things that, they, that gave me a lot of confidence that we were going to be fine at the end of the day. Um, number one, because of the efforts of the state party and some an outside group and Carl Rove and Steve Ministeri and a number of others, we had a net of 150,000 more registered Republicans than the Democrats did since the last midterm in Texas. Mm-hmm. That's probably not happened in 20 years where we had a, we had a net advantage. Certainly not since, since 2014 when Battleground started really spending money to register new voters. Um, and so if you look, if the pie is the same in 2020, look, the, the, this, the single biggest reason that, that this didn't turn out the way the Dems wanted is they thought the pie would be the same in 2020 as it was in 2018. And it wasn't. The pie was basically the same as it was in 2016, just grew, but the proportions were basically the same as they were. They were a lot closer to 2020 than they were to 2018. So, so that, that registration advantage was significant. And Steve Ministeri and Carl Rove and Engage Texas and the state party, the voter uh, edu- voter. Uh, uh, VEP, whatever they call mm-hmm. that thing, registration project, uh, did a great job. But I think the other thing is, uh, the reason I was really confident at the end on the percentage is we had a net around 100, 125,000 vote lead. Trump did in Texas when early voting ended. If mm-hmm. you analyzed who voted. And you did that based on primary vote history and you could look at you know yep. voter scores and things like that. You did have a black box of a certain percentage of people who had never voted never in Texas voted. before. Yep. right? So you can kind of break them down a number of different ways. But if you even were conservative on that, it still was pretty clear Trump had 100,000 votes yes. on election day. If Trump is leading in Texas on election day, he's going to win Texas yeah. because he's going to increase his margin considerably 
uh, after early voting compared to election day. He's going to do better on election day than he is in early voting. So, so Biden slash MJ Hager had to be ahead in Texas through early voting to have mm-hmm. any chance. And they had to hope they could somehow eke it out, either better margins on election day or mail votes coming in over time. I mean, that didn't happen. So, look, Republicans did a great job. Uh, they deserve a lot of credit. Um, again, state party, James Dickey deserves credit for the work that, that was done before he left. The state party current leadership uh, you know, was focused. We had a good field program. They raised mm-hmm. a lot of money. Victory did a good job. Stephen Sturry, to me, is the indispensable man uh, between Cornyn and the state party and the registration effort and the RNC and all of that. I really think he's a player that, that politicos know, but other people don't know, but who is absolutely crucial. Uh, to the success we had here up and down ballot. So, again, I think we got to learn from it. How do we maintain these gains with Hispanic voters? How do we maintain our voter registration effort? How do we raise the money we need? How do we go out and recruit really good candidates who can reflect these districts? And then how do we use legislative sessions to promote the right issues, to get the work done, and then to go communicate with voters? And that's the challenge we're going to face in 2022, 2024, as the demographics of Texas continue to change. Yep. Thank you both for giving me so much time. I appreciate it. Appreciate the discussion. And we need to keep having this discussion over the next several years because, uh, you know, what we take away from the election will determine how we govern. And, you know, Brendan, you're you're talking a lot about policies and ideas and things like that. And, you know, those things are often reflected by how people perceive election results, right? 2018's election really heavily determined our 2019 agenda. It scared Republicans. Uh, they really didn't know what to take away from it. Our, our takeaways in 2020 will determine 2021 and beyond. So appreciate both of you sitting down. Thank you so much for your time. Um, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messias Show. This program is brought to you by Scorecard Media. Check out texasscorecard.com to read up on all things Texas. Scorecard Media has other podcasts as well. Yeah, they're not as good as this one, but you should still check them out. Honestly, though, visit texasscorecard.com to see all the content they're producing on a daily basis. If you'd like our podcast to grow, please consider subscribing to the show on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review. That helps others find the content we're producing. Thank you. God bless you and God bless Texas. Texas.